Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, um, Alex Bonds, and I'm very fortunate today to be joined by Niji from AgentSync. Good morning, sir. Well, it's probably, is it morning where you are? It is. It's like uh, 9 a.m. 9 a.m., 9 a.m. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I get so confused because we sort of jump around the globe slightly on this one. Um, and um, usually different coasts coast of the U.S., which I'm consistently getting wrong. But um, it'd be... Great to kind of thank you for joining us on the on, on the podcast and um, it'd be really useful to before I kind of murder what Agent Sync's really trying to do. It'd be great if you could do a little intro to the business and um, what you guys are up to. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Um, yeah, so first off, my name is Niji. I'm the, the co-founder and CEO of uh, Agent Sync and Agent Sync is a uh, insurance broker management and compliance solution. Uh, for the insurance industry. So we serve insurance carriers, insurance agencies, and uh, managing general agencies. Um, so basically, if you're touching the, uh, the transaction of an insurance policy in any way, shape, or form, um, we provide and really support the, uh, the onboarding, compliance, and uh, broker channel management. Awesome. Awesome. There's, there's a man who's been through some pitching rounds. Got that, got that, got that down. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you, because you're sort of tackling the kind of non-sexy um, area of the market, right? No, no, one, no one gets out of bed and, and gets too excited about the compliance side. But, um, you know, obviously we've not met before, but I've talked to some of your guys and um, you've got a really interesting origin story. Like this, this business comes from a really interesting place. So I wonder just if you'd indulge us kind of like where this idea comes from. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, for, for the record, I think in... Uh, broker compliance is incredibly sexy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, with, with that, um, kind of going back to let's say 2014, actually going back even further. So um, I co-founded a company with my wife, uh, Jen Knight. We actually met at LinkedIn uh, over 10 years ago. She was the uh, technical architect on the business technology team there. Um, I was managing a, a sales ops team. And we, uh, we worked on a bunch of projects together and um, really started dating there. And uh, over that time frame, uh, I actually went to uh, Ireland. I lived in Ireland for about a year and then uh, mm -hmm. came back. Uh, Jen went to uh, Dropbox, where she led the BizTech team there, and then uh, went on to Stripe, uh, where she led the same team there, and wow. uh, actually joined us uh, you know, full-time uh, about, about a year ago. And she was, she was working in an agency kind of nights and weekends while building out a, a team of 40 people there. So she's a, she's a trooper. Wow. Uh, but I went on from uh, LinkedIn, went on to Zenefits. Um, for, uh, for anyone who doesn't know Zenefits, Zenefits is a HR payroll uh, and benefits platform for the SMB. Um, so I joined the company back when I was about 100 employees uh, to lead the sales strategy and operations team. We grew way too quickly from 100 to about 1,700 in a year and a half. And, uh, you know, throughout that hypergrowth, we didn't put the right systems, processes, uh, really management in place around regulatory compliance and uh, got into some pretty hot water, um, uh, basically facing uh, producer licensing violations across every jurisdiction. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, at the time, the, the CEO, Parker Conrad, had me drop what I was doing and uh, partner up with our general counsel and our legal team to get arms around the issue, develop a plan and go execute on it. I knew a little about producer licensing, but uh, um, definitely not not uh, to, to the extent that I know know about it now. Uh, but I was kind of thrown in headfirst into the wonderful world of uh, you know insurance broker compliance, mm -hmm. and spent the next 22 months um, you know building internal controls there, and then also working with state regulators to um, you know get back into good graces, convince them we were a change company, and uh, eventually settle the, the violations that were outstanding. So once we did that, um, took about 22 months, very painful, uh, but ended up leaving the company to um, you know take a shot at creating you know the, the kind of the first modern piece of technology in this, you know, as you mentioned, it's an unsexy corner of an already, you know, fairly dry industry. I think mo mm -hmm. most, would, most would agree. And uh, went out to uh, really tackle this problem with my wife to create basically a really seamless experience between the insurance broker and uh, insurance carriers. So basically, you know, closing that loop in this massively fragmented in industry in the U S at least there's, mm -hmm. um, you know, roughly 200,000 agencies out there, there are insurance agencies. There are 2.3 million broker or individual brokers. And then there's 6,000 underwriters and there's MGAs kind of sprinkled in the middle, um, extremely fragmented, a uh, lot of different touch points. So we're really tackling the, um, the management compliance layer sits, um, across those parties. Wow. Well, there's a lot to digest there. Um, I was just thinking as, as a hit list um, between you and your wife, you've got you've got quite the kind of um, logo list um, in your wake. Um, why did you end up dealing with the kind of getting so heavily involved in kind of resolving this? Um, I didn't want to call it a scandal, but the, the, the thing I looked up was Zenefits. And then the first thing coming up was scandal. And it's a bit scandal, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Why were you running point on that compliance pit from a kind of sales op point of view? Were you just foolish enough to put your hand up or how did that come about? No, I mean, honestly, at the time I was, uh, uh, was not super pumped, right? I, I had kind of established this career in, in, in sales operations. That was my my skill set, you know, what I, what I thought was going to be my career. And then I was asked to basically kind of what I felt like in the moment was kind of jumping on the grenade and taking one for the team yeah. um, to go focus on this uh, on this problem and you know playing more of cleanup than than the look forward, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it it the problem statement intrigued me at you know at this level that was super interesting at the time because there was you know saw this huge gap in the market where it's this very complex kind of uh, web of contracting and and uh, compliance credential verifications and submissions every state. And we're talking about, um, you know, a complexity that, that, you know, boggles the mind. So there's, let's say you're licensed in 50 states um, and you are working with a hundred different insurance carriers. You basically need to have your licenses for every single state you're, you're transacting. And then you also have to have ind individual appointments by state for those hundred carriers. So the, the, uh, the amount of paperwork and, and credentials adds up really, really quickly, um, especially if, if you're an insurance agency like Zenefits was and you're trying to scale very quickly, it, it creates a, an enormous bottleneck um, to your ability to scale. And there's nobody that's focused on, on this problem. So saw, saw an interesting opportunity um, you know, to work on a very worthy problem for a very real industry. Mm -hmm. And so really we built on our, um, Jen and I both built on our experience that we've gained, you know, over the last decade or so 
um, kind of building internal tools and building really sales tools at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Another thing to note, we're, we're built on the Salesforce platform. So Jen and I yeah. both have a ton of experience um, doing that where essentially we were building internal tools at LinkedIn together where uh, her and I would do the kind of the product design. We would um, you know, basically tools to support uh, our sales development function where we built these efficiency tools that would grab a bunch of LinkedIn data, augment the, you know, the prospect or the sales record, and then have uh, uh, these automated triggers for things that happen on LinkedIn for, for us to take action on them. We deployed this essentially the sales console um, across uh, every, every geography globally and ended up getting kind of adopted really quickly. So we worked on a ton of these types of problems where we were taking a complex um, issue or complex problem statement and then uh, building technology on it to um, you know, enable and really support the, uh, the priorities for the business. And that, that's really how we're thinking about this problem for the insurance industry. So we both mm-hmm. came from uh, you know, really great companies and seeing just a crazy amount of ups and downs and sideways and uh, came together on this to take, you know, the best of what we've uh, picked up in our in our career so far to, you know, create a company in 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 the way that we wanted to to create it. Yeah, awesome. And I want to get onto that because I know you've got some really strong ideas about kind of you know what it means to grow a company um, like that. But I just want to sort of focus on the compliance bit as well because obviously mocking we called it um yeah the non sexy bit, but I think yeah the more you talk about it and the more you you know I was just thinking about because of the legislation um you know the legal arena in the us is so complex um there's a huge kind of uh, barrier to entry isn't there for for for, for, the, for that industry and so therefore you're kind of slowing the evolution of the, the kind of consumer experience as well so you know as much as the compliance area might not be that you know in terms of becoming exciting but it kind of it's a massive prohibitor to not only growth but entrance to um, you know, individuals looking to scale. So it, it does a lot there, which is, is desperately needed, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so it's an, it's an interesting kind of market and interesting time to really enter it. So we, um, you know, honestly, we, we, didn't, we didn't quite realize the company was going to be, um, or this, this, uh, this market and product market fit was going to be so strong. There's going to be willingness to, to, to pay around this type mm-hmm. of solution at the scale that it, that it, it actually, we, we see today. So we went into this thing. It was going to be a, a bit of a smaller kind of addressable market and quickly mm-hmm. realized that, um, you know, across the board from insure tax to, you know, insurance companies that have been around for over a hundred years, um, to these kind of newer MGA models that, that are doing really well. Um, there's, a, an enormous demand for this type of uh, software because one for the insurtechs it enables them to scale really quickly. So what would it, would it take took you know probably 20, 20 humans um, you know working around the clock to get uh, brokers onboarded, contracted, verified licenses, background checks, all the individual regulatory filings by state uh, for to let's say get them um, onboard another like two thousand agents month over month. Uh, it would take at least 20 people to actually do that. So we support that use case really well, where we take that bottleneck out. Um, we, you know, take all these compliance rules, um, we translate them into software and really in, into code. And so it just programmatically goes through the business rules to figure out exactly what, what they need, check it. And if it's not, it creates basically an exception list of all the, uh, the issues that need to be chased down. So t- it does all the heavy lifting, allows these folks that would, just spend a ton of time doing paperwork and, and manual repetition of, uh, 
at, at a scale that's just, it really blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So we, we do the heavy lifting to uh, give them the time back to focus on more strategic, um, you know, initiatives for, for the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, it allows these folks to, to scale really quickly and remove that bottleneck while uh, putting a layer of visibility on top. So at any given point, you know, the, uh, the CEO or the uh, general counsel can log in and see a license completion rate. Basically, what what your what your compliance help score is. So we have a ton of visibility um, to give kind of founders and, and uh, leadership the really the comfort and the uh, um, you know the trust that this is going well. Where previous there, there's there's no good way to to make sure that these twenty folks that are working in spreadsheets are doing the right thing at all times. Right. Um, so so this type of solution makes a ton of sense for uh, insure techs. And you know if you if you look at our website, you'll see all, all the logos there. We have uh, a ton of, uh, you know, the sexiest insure decks, I'd say, uh, right now. But we also uh, support the traditional kind of incumbent players really well um, in in this in the same way. But really giving them the ability to uh, nail these digital transformation issues. So one thing that's, that's you know, I think everyone realizes is happening right now is uh, with modern technology kind of entering the industry and you see a ton of ton more investment and these insure techs kind of popping up left and right, you know, it it's going to take market share away from somebody. So mm. um, these folks that have been around a really long time and, you know, built a business over a hundred years are, are one looking to make sure they can stay competitive with, uh, with these insure techs popping up. And a lot of that uh, plays into the amount of tech debt that, that usually exists in these, uh, these uh, players that have been around for a while. And yeah. so we are helping modernize to, um, to, to drive digital transformation and uh, allow them to scale up really quickly if they need to without having to scale up headcount. So we're, mm. we're serving both. Um, we're, so, we're serving both really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And that, that tech deck comes up a lot in, in, in the podcast. And, and, you know, we talk about, it's interesting though, because when you look at data, you know, the, there's the, the argument is, is it, there's bigger opportunities than in legacy insurers because they've got so much data. And they can create kind of great return on investment on things like data, but it's kind of yeah. I don't know. We're not specifically talking about data, but but when you're looking at kind of changing the tech and the kind of legacy that's built up there, the tech debt is it's the kind of balance. And um, yeah, it's interesting what you guys can offer off the shelf. Um, but what, bear in mind where this came from. I wanted to ask you um, this this sort of question, and, and um, yeah, I hope it's put the sort of right way. But essentially, the kind of you know. There's, what happened at Zenefits was kind of a bit of a fail within the organisation, and 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 obviously you know you've sort of come out of that, and 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 there's a there's a huge kind of learn I would imagine. Um, do you think like failure is really important to being successful? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, in 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 our situation, very you know acutely, mm-hmm. um, if. If this hadn't happened, benefits. I mean, we, like we we wouldn't be here right now talking about agency. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think from a, and this is a very specific uh, kind of example. Yeah. Um, but but taking a bit of a step back, uh, just thinking through, you know, both Jen and I's career so far, um, I think absolutely you got to fail a ton of times to really um, you know push the envelope in a way to understand uh, what you can do, <laughs> where your personal limitations are. Um, and, and that, that's the best way to learn is to fall, you know, face first on, on a problem, on an important problem that you're trying to solve. And so we've, you know, we've done that in the careers, uh, so far, um, 
at both, you know, LinkedIn and, and uh, for me, LinkedIn and Zenefits and for her, uh, LinkedIn, Dropbox and Stripe. And we've, we've seen what didn't work a ton of times. And that's almost more important to understand what won't work first, what will work. Um, and we've used these kind of data points and learning to help craft, um, you know, what we, you know, what we feel based on our experience is going to be the, the best of all the companies that we worked at. I think from, from that regard, uh, failure is incredibly important. Um, you know, this is our first company though. So, um, you know, take, take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but, no, you, you have to, you're supposed to do all the failing on someone else's money when you're being employed. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's actually been like a very kind of interesting thread throughout uh, as, as we start the company. We, you know, we, we bootstrap the company um, to really find product market fit and willingness to buy before we, uh, before we you know, took on any outside, outside investment. That, that was mm. a big part of it was really, um, you know, I think any other, any other founder I know would, would quickly just go to raise money on the idea and then kind of figure it out from there. And we've, we've taken a very metered and conservative approach to this, um, you know, coming from, uh, yeah, just <laughs> seeing what we have in, in our past and seeing what, you know, what can go wrong and how quickly it could go wrong. We wanted to take a very metered approach and thoughtful approach mm-hmm. to how we, how we built this and, um, you know, the, the financial met- metrics were at the heart of it. So we wanted to make sure we actually got to cash flow positive before we uh, took on any outside investments. So it's been a, Wow. a theme throughout our company history that even though we have a ton of cash in the bank now, we're still, um, we're still very laser focused on the PL and making sure that we're not you know, doing anything stupid. Mm. That's really interesting as well. Cause I mean, something we talk about in the podcast is, is, is cultural difference between um, fundraising um, between particularly between Europe and the U S and, and it, it, as a generalized rule, it's a sweeping statement. It, it, it tends to be that, you know, good idea, good pitch deck, the investment rounds sort of seem to come earlier in the in the genesis of the business in the US, whereas in 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 the sort of European side, you know, they want to see more bootstrapping. They want to see kind of more of the strategy that you've gone down. Um, do you think that universally holds true, or, or, or is that just <laughs> some nonsense that we've been talking about on my podcast for six months? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, it's a it's a very great topic. I think there's. I think the U.S. from a uh, VC perspective has been there's just too much money floating around, um, mm-hmm. and so it. If you look at the, just the failure rate of startups, um, actually, I don't know this number off the top of my head, but I would bet it's probably the worst in the U.S. because we give a lot more kind of companies and ideas chances at this mm-hmm. um, because there's there's so much capital floating around and, and mm-hmm. so much access to venture capital today, um, and that's. That's especially true right now as we're as we're talking. It's uh, the you know the VC space has never never been hotter. Um, you know we we were able to raise three rounds over the course of eight months. Um, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty wild, but you know I think there's there's definitely something you said about really you know bleeding for a business and, and understanding the um, going into it. Uh, you know, spending every, like every dime that we spent, you know, in the first year and a half um, came out of our checking account. So we, we were, um, you know, in some ways, I think it, it, it ingrained really great um, kind of characteristics for us and, and the way that, uh, that we managed and, and really started the business. But at the same time, we also, we made a bunch, we didn't make a bunch of bets that we could have if we had venture capital in the bank. So yeah. there, there's this interesting dichotomy between the two where I think bootstrapping and and 
you know, feeling the pain of every dollar that goes out is, is going to be really great for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the short term, not everyone's going to be able to do that, right? We're incredibly privileged. Uh, Jen was bringing home a big paycheck. Um, I was able to, you know, leave benefits and basically not have any income. Actually, I have a very negative income for, for the next like year and a half. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have kids at the time. Um, and, you know, we were just like two kind of dum-dums living in San Francisco apartment, able to take these t- type of risks um, where most people can't do that. So there's, I think you got to think about the, your surroundings, the resources that you have available. Uh, we're also, um, you know, not 100% sure how, how much product market fit would be around this idea. So we want to take a much more conservative approach and then taking a hit on the terms up front as well. Yeah. Um, Because if you're, you can't point to a big TAM um, and you haven't proven that you can do it and it's an industry and and a problem statement that not a lot of people really understand or, um, you know, can understand quickly, um, you're just, you're going to get completely shafted when it comes to um, uh, terms. So we, you know, bootstrapped it, got got product market fit, willingness to buy. Um, We were, we had a ton of revenue coming in, um, over a million revenue coming in by the time we actually ended up raising our, our seed. So we're in a, a bit of a like special circumstance in a way, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there, there's always a risk of creating a bit of a bubble as you, as you're just throwing more cash, um, into the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it, it's a really delicate balance as well. It's like, you know, you want to raise, I've had this sort of theoretical conversation as well a few times, but you want to raise enough to kind of actually do the things you need to do, but obviously not so much that it kind of creates a kind of disillusion with where you are financially. You know, you, at the end of the day, it's, got, it's a business. It has to kind of stand on its own two feet. Um, and it's, it's dangerous when the business becomes just con- continuously seeking investment. Um, and that's why I, I'm always kind of, I'm always drawn to businesses like yourself that have kind of gone out, proved it's, you know, proved, got it up and running and then gone out and wrestling. So just for me, it just feels, it feels like a more kind of appropriate model of actually, you know, getting to the point where, you know, we've got these huge tech organizations that um, hugely valuable on paper that still don't make money. And, 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 and I'm still quite baffled by that. I did business economics at university and I'm like, when is any of this stuff going to be true that I learned? And, and none of it is. We throw it in the bin. Um, but, uh, but, but it is really interesting. So I like when people have got that um, mindset. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, real quick. Part of that is like we, I, I grew up without, uh, without a lot of money. Um, you know, the, the, just the amount of money that we're, we're spending right now as a business um, was keeping me up at night for a while. I finally kind of reconciled that, but really? you know, we're spending, um, you know, uh, gross without taking account for any of the income coming in. We're spending about a million dollars a month right now. And that, yeah. that scares the daylights out of me when I, when I really <laughs> process it. Right. So coming, you know, not coming from a ton of money and, and being very quickly in a place where we're, you know, we're saying literally a million dollars, just like leave, just go into the ether every month. I mean, it doesn't really go into the ether. It's paying our employees mostly and other things. But uh, you know that that is a a very real thing that I think doesn't it it doesn't feel real all the time. So especially you know you raise so much cash and it's all a bunch of ones and zeros in a computer and you don't end up actually ever seeing the cash right. You're just transferring money basically back mm-hmm. and forth. It doesn't really feel real. But I think understand the reality of that. Like you know that that million dollars is. is house or two for for somebody right so just kind of putting things into context i think has been really helpful for us and and makes it feel a lot real 
at the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's, you know, um, at the same time, it, it, if you're trying to swing, go big at all times and test that, you know, every idea, it, it, it allows for more of those to potentially work out in the long run where, um, you know, I've, I've seen a ton of founders in San Francisco that will go raise a couple million bucks. You know, the, the, the idea will fail and they'll just go big every time they'll, they'll do it, you know, in one to two year cycles. And they'll just keep repeating that until one hits and that, that, you know, the, the argument could be made that that is a much more uh, efficient way to do it. If you think about the actual amount of capital going in, the capital coming out right now, it's, the liquidation is just raining money right now for all these uh, all these startups that have you know actually gotten to uh, public markets uh, really really fast and all that money's being you know basically siphoned back into startups now. Mm-hmm. And again, that's what's driving most of the uh, most of the hotness um, in um, in tech right now. But mm-hmm. it was, I think it was Nori to said both ways. But for for longevity of the business, I think it is really important that the founders understand you know the value of a dollar. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something in um, you and your wife, you know, obviously, uh, if, if you take the relationship out of it, you just, it's a good founding team. Right? You've got sales and sales operations, and then you've got tech know-how. That seems kind of naturally a really, really good fit where you're going to have that balance of kind of building the right thing and then, and then knowing that, knowing the value of the dollar, because, you know, the sales guys, as much as, Sales and business development seems to be the dirty word in tech. Uh, <laughs> people need to acknowledge you can build the great thing, but you need to sell it. People need to need to buy it. Is, is there something in making sure that you've got the right founding team? Do you think as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that relationship is so important, right? The, mm-hmm. the co-founder relationship. I mean, I think we, we've yeah, I'm just very lucky that we you know timing and everything worked out where we could do this together because she you know we were essentially you know, running the company together and I look over, you know, sale, sales, um, kind of business operations, uh, all the customer facing teams. And she really focuses on, on product and engineering that we come together on kind of product strategy and, and vision and mm-hmm. having that, that strong relationship is so important because we, we actually make all decisions with everything in mind where, um, you know, every company you can basically call out, okay, that's a product like company or that's a sales like company. And there's, mm-hmm. There's very, very few instances where I've seen like a really equal uh, kind of focus on, on both. So I think, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're great co-founders. We happen to be married is, is a good way to think. think about yeah. That. I was going to, I was going to say, you know, getting that balance right. Um, uh, although, although I, I won't ask it, if that, if it, if you don't agree on things, that must be a difficult, uh, <laughs> difficult period of time. No, it's actually, it's, it, I mean, yeah, of course it is. And we, we had a baby, by the way, like six months ago. So we're, and we moved, you know, from San Francisco to Denver, um, all in that time frame, and obviously dealing with the pandemic and everything. So it's been super high stress. Um, You know, the, the (laughs) adding a baby to the mix definitely, definitely didn't help, but we're, we're very fortunate that, and we, we did, we did this pretty deliberately by, by the time the baby came, we had, um, we had good leadership in, in mm-hmm. place and, and the, mm-hmm. the team was in a pretty, pretty good spot where, um, you know, we were able to not like step away, but, um, we were able to sit, take a step back and, and, you know, basically the nothing, 
no issues really popped up and and the business is still you know was still able to kind of crank um while, while we were completely out with the with the baby but yeah, yeah i mean it, it's it is uh it can be challenging at times for sure yeah. um but it, what what's worked worked really well for us is we have that that separation of duty so anything um kind of product engineering execution of the product is is um you know if Jen has a strong opinion on it, she wins every single time. She sure. usually wins, but uh, and then on the, the you know the sales, the marketing, and kind of the fundraising side, um, you know, she she leaves that to me. So we're we're able to 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 work really well together from that respect. But there's you know I always kind of I can't help myself sometimes I'm like hey I think that should work this way. She's like no it shouldn't. I'm like okay all right you're right. <laughs> no it's good. I mean. The successful things that we seem to have on is that it, you, you have that natural kind of um, defined, whether they're defined ahead of time, you just, anyone, it, it seems to kind of just settle um, that that people kind of take you know, the bulk responsibility for areas, but it just seems that yours is, is really, really clearly defined. Um, I wanted to go back to the funding, because obviously you've been through you know a couple of funding rounds, as you mentioned. You know, ha- I wanted to ask you sort of a double-edged question, really, like, how important is is the are the right funding partners, um, and 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 what to you? What 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 does that look like to you? What does the right funder look like to you? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. So, I mean, the our investors are incredibly important. I think investors in in general are incredibly important. Really, for for there's two sides to it. There is what they can do for you and what they can enable, and you know how they can support you and and the business through every stage of growth. Um, and then there's also the getting in your way unnecessarily, um, which I've just heard horror stories in, in this industry around uh, not so great investors being there from from very early stage and having too many like, inputs and, and kind of opinions on how the business should be run. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's that, that delicate balance. And then I think ultimately um, on fundraising just overall, one thing that was was really kind of interesting to me and, and that kind of clicked over time was because we originally weren't anticipating taking on any outside capital. Um, we were planning on, on staying bootstrapped and not having that, uh, you know, not having that, that unnecessary influence is what I was thinking about at the time. And uh, my opinion changed over time for, you know, a few reasons. One, there was um, the, the thought of somebody else coming into the market that was well-funded at the point that, you know, we proved our product market fit when we to buy and someone else said, hey, I see that, like we can do that too. Um, creating that moat uh, is a lot harder when you're, when you're funded over your checking account. You're, you're not able to pull those, that headcount forward and, and, you know, take a bunch of uh, kind of intelligent bets along the way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being able to uh, pull that headcount forward because, you know, we grew from six to 60, we're 64 today. We grew from six to 64 over the last 12 months. We couldn't have done that. Um, you know, self-funded. Yeah. So it, it creates an opportunity for you to go and capture up as much as much market share as possible and really refine and, and double down on, on the idea and the, um, you know, the kind of broker ecosystem for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other piece was not having control uh, and kind of overs- oversight in a way for, for the day-to-day operations. We want to make sure that was, that was not part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the other kind of knock-on effects that we didn't really anticipate were you know, right now we're hiring a head of product and a head of engineering um, without having done our series A and without having, you know, raised 36 million over, over the last 12 months. So we're well-funded and we have, you know, marquee investors like, uh, you know, Mark Benioff, uh, Lord Gill, David Sachs, like without having those, 
a lot harder to, to go out and find a very senior uh, product engineering lead. Really finding senior leads at all, um, it's, it's a lot harder to pitch somebody to take you know take a pretty big risk on on a, on a new company without without having those uh, those investors and really the cash in the bank. So there's there's all these um, uh, kind of knock on effects that that were that I didn't quite see before having not uh, gone through this, uh, which which I would consider to be very important learnings for us. But anyway, so um, on the on the partners that we chose, we really wanted to bring in ex-founder operators that really understood what we were going through at, at that stage and really every stage of growth. And uh, you know, we did, did exactly that. So our seed was led by um, uh, Alad Gale and Ray Tonsing from uh, Cap Caffeinate Capital. Um, they, you know, they've both seen a ton uh, as far as you know building companies, scaling them. Um, you know, whenever we had a, but you know, kind of stupid new founder questions, they were they were really per perfectly suited to uh, you know one say, ah, oh, don't worry about that, or oh, you should be thinking about this one, this way, this way, this way. So, really, it's it's folks that you feel they you feel like you can trust. It's really hard to build that trust over a short period of time with new investors, and especially when you're doing everything over Zoom. We still haven't met a single one of our investors, which wow. is kind of bonkers. Wow. Um, well, I mean, my, those couple of them I knew from from before, but over the last, you know, since we started the company, we haven't actually seen anyone. So, mm -hmm. uh, building that trust can be can be very difficult. But I think spending having enough conversations, you can get a better sense of, um, you know, what what the motivations are, and um, mm -hmm. also doing uh, founder other founder references is really important. So, talking to other founders within, you know, that that investor's portfolio. So. That trust is going to be incredibly important because you want to make sure that they are just going to be helpful and they're not going to, um, you know, try to get in your way unnecessarily, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we, we've been able to do that through really thorough uh, monthly investor updates um, to kind of report out how things are going. Um, you know, we have all, all the, the high level stats on the business, the problems we're trying to solve and, and things like that. So I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, striking that balance uh, between the two. Um, the other, the other thing that's going to be really important is uh, network. So making sure you're, you're um, almost over indexing on finding investors that have a great network, have a reputable kind of brand and name. So when you do run into an issue, they, you know, if they're not able to, you know, help you specifically right there, they're able to plug you into their network of, um, yeah. you know, folks that have maybe tackled this specific issue. Mm -hmm. um, so that was super important. Then also having a brand recognition for recruiting. Um, um, also, you know, should not be underestimated. Um, yeah. And then, and then terms, oh, deal terms is always the big one. I think having doing it from uh, most of our investors are based in San Francisco, and being able to uh, um, to tap into that market, we're able to get you know what I consider to be uh, really great terms. I think the the v VC kind of market and game is expanding beyond San Francisco pretty quickly, which, which is really great to see. Um, but yeah, terms is also one worth uh, noting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting, really. You know, I think that networking piece is really important. But the, you know, obviously, my my bread and butter, my day job is is the recruitment side, and you know, absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I get asked all the time, I work with a lot of kind of seed and Series A businesses, and and it's a challenge because you've got, and the first thing people want to know is, you know, obviously not just uh, how much capital. Where's it come from? You know, who are the investors? And and there's a view, particularly in the space, you know, my space is insurance. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of 
emphasis on people that understand the space. So, you know, insurance has quite quite often is is, is fairly slow. It's a slow burning market. It's not it's a fast follower market. It's not a kind of first mover market. And so therefore, you know, some of these businesses take time to build up. So it's like, do the investors understand that? Do they, you know, so it, it, it's really interesting how much that plays into, you know, whether you can attract the best talent, as you say. Um, and of course, you know, the other thing is that finding the right talent is, is expensive, you know, and, and reassuringly so. And, um, you know, sometimes that's, um, that's difficult when you're a startup and you've got to have those conversations. And I know, in our dreamland, we always want to get these people that are just, you know, committed to the journey and, and, and they're on board. And I think people can bang that drum too hard. And it's like, look, you know, if you're the founders and it's your business, then obviously you really want it to be successful. And, and, and the greatest lion's share of that success will, will rightly come to, to the founders and, and the early investors. Um, but I think sometimes we can, we can overplay how much it should mean to the people joining the business because they're looking for interesting work, they're looking for interesting roles, but they, they're never gonna be as invested in that business emotionally as, as, as the people that found it. And, and um, certainly in my experience, sometimes there's a disconnect between people's expectations of how committed people are from that point of view. Um, and unfairly, you know, I think people sort of hold it against someone that, oh, they wouldn't run through a plate glass window for us. And I'm like, <laughs> do you expect them to like <laughs> these are great people they've got loads of options you know you know so um but yeah that recruitment piece is really interesting um i wanted to actually i want i want to jump onto that actually and talk about recruitment i know about building teams but just for one second and we mentioned it earlier the tech's in a bit of a bubble do you think specifically insure tech is in a bit of a bubble at the moment, potentially um no more than anything else right now and it, I'd say it's, it's, it's mostly tech right now. And, um, you know, within that it's FinTech and tech and like, yeah. you know, reg tech, everything, yeah, yeah. uh, mostly because in the pandemic it's, you know, you don't want to go into manufacturing because there's just tons of, you know, just a nightmare of issues, uh, in a bunch of other industries, you know, manufacturing, chipping, you name it. Um, but there's, there's, I think once we get out of the pandemic, there's going to be, um, I think more of a redistribution from tech to, to other industries um, yeah. as, as things come back online. It's just so much more money out there right now. Mm -hmm. If you think about the, the amount of liquidity that's kind of hit uh, investors are going to, you know, put it right back into the market, uh, mm -hmm. sorry, right back into startups. Um, it's, it's pretty bonkers. If you like count, you know, the, the billions of dollars that, that have come out just in the last like six months or so. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, um, there's definitely, I think, a hotness in tech right now, but it, I, I wouldn't say it's more than any other, you know, um, any other area of tech. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it's one area that that is ripe for innovation, and and there's a lot more demand. So I think right now is a really great time because there was this kind of forcing mechanism with the pandemic to move from, you know, brick and mortar, doing everything on paper in person to um, having everyone remote and, you know, to have people remote, you have to have technology to be able to support that. And there's, there's been the shift away from doing things in person to doing things online. That's always going to drive a ton more demand uh, around technology. And um, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, that get, get picked up in a bunch of different ways, but really through, um, you know, through taking capital on from, from venture capital. And there's just so much money floating around. It's, it's hard not to, um, but I wouldn't say there, there's a bigger bubble uh, by any means in insure tech, just a bubble everywhere. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. And um, 
you know, I think the, the, the big thing for me is the culture shift as well. Like insurance has always been a very face-to-face -face business. Um, it, it, even from the consumer perspective, it's, it's not that far removed that everyone kind of went to their insurance broker and, and they, you know, the people are only just kind of moving that way. And then, and then you look at the kind of actual mechanics of the, the industry, the kind of internal tech, um, it's, it's, it's a seismic shift to say, right, everyone has to work remotely. Um, and and it, it, it was always going to need something like that. And, and, and it's happened. So, you know, it's inevitable that, um, that there's a focus on kind of um, using tech better. Um, yeah. But yeah, actually, yeah, well, yeah, one, yeah, one oh, more please. thing I want to say, say on that topic. So there's uh, one thing that, that it's, it's hard to remember now, given everything um, kind of the market exists, exists today. But when we went to go out and raise capital for the first time, it was like June of last year. It felt, feels mm. like so long ago. Um, we were we were terrified that we weren't going to be able to raise capital. As every founder I've talked to that is uh, founded in SureTech or it's in the space um, couldn't couldn't raise from 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 at least uh, like Silicon Valley venture capital. Mm -hmm. um, there are you know there's private equity and a bunch of other kind of uh, uh, angel routes that you can take, and that was you know until recently that was the only option available. And usually get just really shitty terms. Um, you'll have, you know, again going back to some of those horror stories. Um, heard uh, private equity firms that you know will take like majority board control up front and, and um, just get way too involved in, in the day to day operations. Mm -hmm. So I think it was only until recently that um, you can demonstrate that uh, you know that uh, InsureTech was a uh, you know a great place to put uh, VC money and. Uh, yeah, if you just look at look at the InsureTech uh, VC deals over the last like uh, like five years, you'll probably see a big uptick. You see a big uptick in every industry, but um, there's more. There's definitely more appetite um, for VCs and really investors overall um, in InsureTech. I think there, there's enough data points that um, you know Lemonade is a really great example where um, you know pretty pretty fast turnaround from uh, you know, from when they they took on capital to to when they went public, but a couple other examples out there. Um, but it, it is, it is a, it seems seem a little bit more mainstream now. And the fact that we were able to get some pretty marquee investors to invest uh, early on was, uh, I think, a testament to that. Yeah, no, you make a really important point, actually, that, that, that is, it's not just momentum. Yeah, we've, we've got data points we can point to saying, look, this is, this is a good, this is a good space to invest in. And, 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 and you know, now there's more popping up every minute. There's a sort of big, uh, particularly unicorn size companies but um i wanted to speak to you about teams i know this is really important to um, um you and your wife uh, about kind of building teams um and i always talk about team building where like culture meets values that's that's a big thing for me um but um i wanted to get your view on kind of what you guys are doing around teams because i know you've got some kind of initiatives that you're trying to you know uh, you're trying to build the business in a certain way um so just get your take on that and then we can probably talk about some specifics around culture um but um yeah you because you're particularly trying to pursue having more female engineers is you know but i think you've got a massive advantage because your cto is is your wife and, and I, that, that's you know that's that's a huge thing but um yeah you you seem to have some quite strong views on kind of building teams yeah so i think overall what we're trying to do is um um really have a culture and I think we're at this point right now it's going to be kind of ours to to 
make sure we maintain over the next year or two or three years. But we've built a team that has a, an incredible amount of focus, but also, you know, loves to laugh and loves to have fun. And, and mm-hmm. humor is actually a really big part of that because, you know, what, for the, the subject matter that we're working on, like you need, you, you have to laugh a bit and you have to have fun doing this. And, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, we're tackling an unsexy problem in a really interesting way, building very modern technology around it and, and just hearing the, the relief in our customers' voices every day when, we, when we're working on a problem specifically for them that no technologist has ever worked, worked on. That, that's helped us, you know, feel really great about the mission and what we're doing and that we're actually, you know, creating something that's very valuable, um, you know, in, in the industry and then building a team around that's having a lot of fun doing it. So we're, um, you have been very deliberate from day one on a couple things. Like one, just the bar for talent needs to be incredibly high. And, um, you know, for example, there, uh, we're, we're looking for really kind of experienced, intelligent people from kind of every walk of life across every industry. And at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, we have a, um, you know, no assholes policy, um, you know, right off the bat where, you know, we, we could find a salesperson that if we know they're going to hit 200% of the number every quarter, we still would never hire them if they were, you know, a shark or um, if, if they were uh, going to be a risk or culture at all. So we're very deliberate about the folks that we want to bring on um, that, you know, share our values, that think about, uh, um, really think about the, the work-life balance also in the same way. And that's something very important to us. But the other kind of big component, which you mentioned, is a focus on, on diversity for, from day one. It's not just a, you know, uh, something we, we tacked on later on. It's, it's not something you can, you can fix later. Um, yeah. It has to be kind of ingrained um, into the hiring processes from day one. And so Jen and I have, uh, in our careers, have, have seen, seen this play out too many times where if you don't have enough different voices and different personalities at a table and making decisions, um, you're, you're, the quality of your decisions erode over time where you have um, you know, a great mix of gender, kind of ethnicity, uh, geography, um, kind of what, what, you know, what school that person went to. Um, you have that diversity of uh, you know, across these different people that translates directly into the quality of the product or customer service, or, you know, our ability to go to market. Mm-hmm. So um, if you get you know, a very homogenous group in a room that you know, went to the same school, same background, um, you know, same uh, gender, same race, you're going to get pretty homogenous ideas coming out of there. So, you know, we see it as a strategic advantage to build a team that's, um, that's very representative, not just of our community, but just representative of uh, our customer base, you know, just kind of our, um, yeah, really our customer base in our community at the end of the day. But we've done that through building very diverse pipelines of candidates going into it. And it's something that's, that's very difficult and takes a lot of a lot more time and dedication to it, but making sure that when we, when we're going out to hire role that uh, when the teams, you know, interviewing, let's say five candidates, that those five candidates are, you know, have that representation of what we want the company to look like. Cause if you don't have that, you can't, you know, we're we're not going to make decisions on uh, at the end of the day. Okay. Well, we need a more, you know, another person like this race or this gender, we, we do it at at the pipeline stage and, you know, the rest will take care of itself um, if we do that correctly. Mm-hmm. So that's been that's been a huge focus to us, um, and it's actually created this really interesting um, advantage when it comes to recruiting, which I wasn't really thinking about, where we weren't thinking about originally. Um, but we're starting to talk to candidates of read things in the press, or you know, heard, heard a podcast like this where we talk about diversity, and we're you know we're very open, deliberate about it. 
And that, that resonates where, you know, we can attract, for example, our, our product engineering team is a majority, majority female, which is super rare and, um, yeah, in tech or probably like every industry. And so we're able to attract, you know, the best and brightest uh, women who might not be, you know, feel as comfortable on their current team or, you know, another role they're looking at because, you know, we've created this, this diverse team where they, they truly feel like they can come in, they can be themselves. They don't have to be a different person at work than they do in their personal life. Their ideas are heard. They have uh, psych- psychological safety and really um, feel comfortable voicing their ideas and not worried about any repercussions or fitting in because they have a representative group around them. So if you're the only you know, woman uh, among a team of 20 engineers, 20 male engineers, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna feel super comfortable voicing your ideas all the time. But we've created this nice um, working environment where everyone who joins us has a bunch of other people that you know, they can um, like, look like them, talk like them. Uh, and it, it creates this, this culture from day one of uh, really like inclusion, people feeling uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is actually having people be themselves at work, the same people that are at work yeah. as, as they're on their personal life. And that's, that's just, you know, this, uh, this dichotomy I've been struggling with most of my career. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, can be kind of brash at times. I have, you know, I'm covered in tattoos. Um, you know, I've had to kind of, I've had to filter who I really am at work. And it's just not a, it's not a great place to be. You, you don't feel like you can be as productive, uh, mm-hmm. as efficient, uh, if you're spending a ton of time trying to filter, you know, who you really are. Yeah, and it can, yeah, that's. I mean, there's so much there that I want to unpick slightly, uh, but I'm, I'm conscious of our time, so I won't, I, won't, I won't unpick it too much. But um, one, I wish I could kind of, well, I will. I will cut and frame this, the, the section that started the pipelining thing. I wish more people understood that. You know, it's it's hugely time-consuming, but there's so many times I'm having the conversation with a team going, you know, we want we want you know, we want a more diverse team. And then you look at the team, and the bare bones are, are kind of are not diverse. And then you always got to struggle to start with because, you know, one of the, one of the best ways to go and find diverse talent is, is, is ask your team, you know, um, you know, female engineers tend to know more female engineers than male engineers do, you know, and, and that's just a kind of really rudimentary thing. Like statistically that holds true. So, you know, if you're starting with a, with a bad kind of foundation, well, not a bad foundation, but if you're starting with a foundation that's not representative of your of your uh, yeah either your workplace or, or your or your, your community or whatever, then you're always going to start from a kind of a poor start. But yeah, it's not easy because that's my question for you is like how do you hire at scale with the investment that you've got and at speed and still stay true to that and and and. and presumably that's in the pipelining because otherwise you'd never be able to do it. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're hiring three to five people a week right now. And we have been for a long time. So we're, we're, we're doing this at scale. We're doing it through, um, we have a really great head of uh, head of talent who, mm-hmm. who, you know, has really great strategies uh, for how we, how we do this. And, and we have to be very, like, you know, she'll hold our feet to the fire to make sure that we, we don't, you know, even if we need a role really badly, that we wait until we have that, that pipeline in place. Otherwise, if, if, you know, it's slippery slope, once you, once you make a couple exceptions uh, for speed over like what you're trying to accomplish, um, that starts just shifting the mix really quickly. And once the mix shifts, it's really hard. Once you have a panel of, let's say, you know, one type of engineer, um, you know, not to, not to like pigeonhole everybody into just thinking this way, but 
you know, I think data points has, has proven that you have, you know, five people of the same uh, group, you know, from like race, uh, ethnicity, gender, you name it. They're probably going to pick folks that, you know, look more like them or talk more like them. So doing that from day one is so important because every, every you know, um, decision-making around these roles is, is really a team effort. We have every, you know, all the, the key folks on the team interview every candidate we bring in and um, we take, you know, everyone's feedback really seriously. So if we're, if we start from a um, homogenous place, we're going to end in a homogenous place. But if we start from a, um, you know, pretty well balanced uh, place, we're going to continue that balance, but you got to be very deliberate. I mean, it's hard in Denver. Denver is not the, the most diverse market to hire in. Is that has that decision on on that commitment meant that you've had to? I know obviously the pandemic's happened, but did you have to very early on make the decision that you're going to be more comfortable with remote working? You're going to enable that kind of more because otherwise, you know, if you're based in Denver, then as you say, like it's only going to be as diverse as 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 Denver. But um, did you did that kind of play into your thinking? What how you set the business up? Yeah, so we, we were remote from day one, um, mm. mostly because we couldn't afford folks in San Francisco when we were funding <laughs> our checking account. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, you know, we hired folks kind of all over the U.S. Um, and we, we've continued to do that. And, and when we made the decision to move uh, from San Francisco to Denver, we did want to centralize uh, the employee base um, in Denver, but still have you know a, a decent chunk of our employees that are remote. It's kind of funny because the last year we, we've had. You know, eighty percent of our, our employees are are in Denver, and we're, I think, I've only met in person maybe like less than ten out of the sixty, you know, four four people. Wow. So we're 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 all remote, you know, really at the end of the day. But um, we did want to have an employee base that was centralized here, so that um, you know, when the pandemic does end, we had we can bring everyone into an office. I I I am a big believer that having that face to face communication, or at least a a decent amount of it, is actually really important. And and I. It might just be me kind of personally projecting, but, uh, you know, doing everything over Zoom is, is not definitely not the same. Um, mm. and, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of loss that happens there. So we, while we continue to have a remote workforce where, you know, especially hard to find a product and engineering talent, um, we will, you know, we'll, we'll, if somebody's amazing and, and they fit exactly what we need, we'll, we'll hire them kind of wherever they are. But we do want to have at least the majority of our employees here because it's a lot harder to switch back. Let's say we ended up doing 50-50 remote, 50-50 or 50 remote, 50 Denver. Um, once we do go back to an office, it, it you lose a little bit of that, uh, um, the, the opportunity to be face-to-face if, you know, if the majority of the employees aren't there. And, and, and you do get a bit of them and us, you know, the people that are in the HQ and together face-to-face, it starts to kind of be a separator. I, th- I think... I think it's going to be a real challenge for people once once we kind of, you know, London's starting to open up now, we're starting to see people go back to work. And it's really interesting because there's definitely a kind of a struggle because some people have, you know, really excelled in lockdown in terms of work-wise. Um, you know, they've liked being distant, they like being remote, but now they've been pulled back to the office. Well, what does it mean for them? There's people like myself where I really miss that face-to-face contact because, you know, my biggest thing is taking briefs from clients and saying, what do you need and what do you want? And having those conversations, just something gets missed over Zoom. It's just harder. There's, you know, it's that it's that nonverbal communication that, that you kind of see the excitement of someone. You know, one of my clients is reporting back about, you know, a candidate they've interviewed or what they did like, what they didn't like. And 
I think there's just there's a nuance that you just can't get over Zoom. Um, so I'm desperate to get back, but I appreciate that not everyone's the same. So getting that balance right is going to be really challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having there's no replacement for having a meal with somebody, but whether it's like a sales recruiting, I mean, you name it, type of conversation. Yeah. There's, there's um, technology can't fill fill that gap, at least not yet. No, yeah. And there's um, uh, yeah. The the other the other thing that we've been thinking about is having this. Uh, there's you know, as people are getting Zoom fatigue and, and doing everything over Zoom, there's a you know, a growing kind of in the beginning, I think a lot of people are excited that, Hey, this is a whole new kind of world of possibility where I can be hundred percent remote. Um, you know, I don't need to leave my house. I don't even have to put on pants for like my, my work day. Right. And over time, as people start doing this over and over again, I'm like, Holy shit, this, this sucks. Right. So there, there's a group of people still probably love it, but there's enough people that see having the the option to go into an office is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. So I think for, for us, we want to make sure we're, we're, you know, we're, we're providing both to, to our employees. Um, but have, having that option is actually something that we found is uh, more, is really interesting to candidates where a lot of, especially these big companies are just giving up all their office space and they're going to full remote. I think that we're, we're gonna be able to compete with them in a, in a much uh, a much better way, having a place for people to go into and, and create that community and, and have that real time in-person collaboration. Mm, awesome. Well, I'm not going to overstay my welcome, man. It's starting to get dark in the background, so I probably should uh, probably should go before we hit 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 midnight. But um, no, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm re- it's super exciting your business. The speed at which you're growing is 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 something else, and and doing it in in the midst of um, uh, growing a family at the same time. I I I take my hat off to you if I was wearing one, but. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see what you guys get up to. So, um, no, thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great no. conversation, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Bye. See you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insurtech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.